Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to, yes, Oral Delights, show 120. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is, as usual, fine and dandy. Well, last week was the first show of the old school versus new school, and I hope you enjoyed that. You know, just to give you a little sample of you know up to date literature and you know kind of past literature right in the past. Don't forget to vote. You've still got probably three weeks left there now. So go over, come onto the website, go onto the forums. There's a button on the website. You can you can see the kind of little poll. Please click on that and vote. I told you last week that I wasn't too happy with. Old school versus new school, you know what I mean? And I've had a few people actually now said, just what about, you know, like science fiction then and now or, or just then and now? And I think then and now is quite nice, do you know what I mean? Because in a way it's, you know, it's going to be hard. And it was kind of mentioned on the forums that have straight within minutes of the show going up, you know what I mean? It would have been nice, like a science fiction story and a science fiction story. Do you know what I mean? Like, But, but it's going to be, honestly, to kind of pull that off week in, week out, and making sure it's, you know, they kind of both match up, it's going to be, you know, not week in, week out, you know, every month, it's going to be pretty hard, to be quite honest, and just not worth the kind of the, the fighting and the wrangling, so they're going to have, so I think that probably the best way to look at it is, you know, both these stories will have elements of the fantastical in them, you know, be it science fiction, be it fantasy, and it's just really what you like, do you know what I mean? Which ones you like the best? And like I say, it's probably now going to be changing to just simply then and now. Do you know what I mean? That would be quite sweet. I was a little bit hesitant with, you know, old school versus new school. It sounded like bloody, you know, the kind of Orange County Choppers, whatever. You know, when that show, they're kind of making the motorbikes and stuff like that. So please come over to the site. Do, do vote, you know what I mean, just to get involved. And then I'll tell you, you know, when the next kind of show goes up in three weeks' time, who actually won, you know, from... Nina Kariki Hoffman and John W. Campbell. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We have news, any science fiction news that's been going on. We have a promo by the Hairy Mango. I keep, you know, Matt, so I keep putting, not putting off, Matt's got a story in it. And I, you know, Tony, are you playing that? And it's been here about a year. <laughs> <laughs> this is the make up for Matt, you know, because actually a couple of weeks ago, Matt, I will get it out next week. Didn't come out. Sorry, Matt. So got a promo for the Hairy Mango. We have Amy H. Sturgis looking back at science fiction history. Then we have Main Fiction, which is by one of the legends of science fiction, Mr. Gene Wolfe. But before we get into the main show, I just want to give a little editorial on something that's happening, you know, within probably a week's time. Valentine's Day. 
Yes, love is in the air. <laughs> People are thinking, oh, Johnny. But yes, it is. And actually, this is my probably one chance. No, one chance. That's terrible, even seeing it like that. But it's just my chance to kind of tell you a little bit about, you know, kind of my relationship with me, me good wife, you know what I mean? Who kind of, Melanie, who just, oh, do you know what I mean? This show, honestly, wouldn't get out you know, if it wasn't for Melanie, just, you know what I mean? I'm actually, you know, when you just look at my kind of lifestyle, I'm a lucky lad, do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm a big kid, you know what I mean? And, and I don't like the real world kind of creeping in. Honestly, it's true. And Melanie kind of just, is that defence, you know, is that kind of brick wall that just stops it all, do you know what I mean? And I just, I'm just here sitting away, talking away, and, you know, and you just look at this kind of setup I've got, you know, Big computer, two screens, mixing desk, and you know, science fiction, this, and you know, when it comes to the real world, I just bury my head in the sand, you know, and Melanie is just an amazing person to get, and just takes all that and takes it on board and just gets everything, you know what I mean? Works a damn sight, a damn sight harder than, you know what I mean? It's just, there's no comparison in jobs. And then to come home and to kind of just carry on and just get everything right in the house as well. And it's just like you say, I'm being truthful here, Starship Sofa just certainly wouldn't get off the ground at all if it wasn't for Melanie. You know, I just think I kind of need to tell you that, just how important this woman is in my life. You know, we've been together now. It's probably coming on about... 19 years now do you know what I mean and it's hard to kind of get an idea of what I'm like from this show I know every you know you, you kind of you, you make your own ideas but I'm I'm a bit of a hard one to live with do you know what I mean I'm like a, I don't know this I've got a bit of a temper <laughs> that's number one do you know what I mean it's like a, it's up and down you know what I mean it's like it doesn't I'm, I'm not one of those ones that lasts forever but it, it's like, you know what I mean? It's touch paper. Do you know what I mean? So, gotta put up with that. Do you know what I mean? Then, like you say, when I kind of focus on something, you know, my whole attention's on it and things on the outside world get left and ignored. You know, she puts up with all that. And then, you know, this, this whole like Starship Sova, me kind of, me rig, as you best to describe it now, is, in the kind of the dining room, you know, the dining room's attached to the living room. We've got one of them houses where it's, you know, it's two rooms kind of knocked into one. And, you know, the kind of all the telly in the living areas in that side of the room or the, the yes, in that side of the room. And then in this, this area of the room, you know, this whole kind of kit and caboodles here. And she puts up with all this. And like I say, just looking around, it's, you know, it's every geek's dream. Do you know what I mean? There's like, oh, it's just like... Unreal, to be quite honest. It's just wires everywhere, screens everywhere, mixing desks, you know, like external hard drives and microphones. You know, I can see two microphones at the minute. Oh, do you know what I mean? And it's, it's in the real world, it's clutter. <laughs> That's just probably the best, best way to describe it. But do you know what I mean? She, like I say, is an amazing woman and just puts up with all that. And I just, like I say, it's just important that I kind of mention this to you is, you know, just how how amazing this woman is to us and how I feel about her. Do you know what I mean? She is just so kind and gentle, you know what I mean? And I, like every mom to every kid, you know, it's, it's got that. It's certainly not unusual in that. But, you know, when you just see the kind of love that radiates from her, what? I am just so lucky to know her, you know what I mean? Like I said, to be in a relationship for this long with her. And it's still, you know, it's get weird how it, you know, when you get a little bit older, kids, yes, it does, it gets stronger. Do you know what I mean? I'm 
God, we've had some fights in our life. Do you know, I need to tell you this one story. I think I don't know if I mentioned it once before. Just like in the early days, we bought this new bed, brand new bed. You know what I mean? And we were kind of like students kind of times, you know, we kind of had this brand new bed, like a wooden bed, all fancy scrolls and everything like that. And for some reason, we put it up in this kind of big old house where we lived in Newcastle. Put it up, looked lovely. Didn't we have an argument putting it up? And... It, one push led to another push. We were both pushing each other, and I pushed her, and she <laughs> she felt, hit the back, you know, the the the, kind of the bottom board of the of the bed, snapped it, sat on it, and fell back onto the bed, snapped the bed. Just <laughs> like, and there is so many like stories like that, but yet we're still, you know, we're still together, and it's it it gets honestly better and better and better. You know what I mean? So. I just want to kind of, you know, again, I just want to say it's Valentine's and everyone, I kind of, you just need to, you know, get a hold of your partner and just give them a big hug. There you go. And it's not often, a, you know what I mean, a 40, what's it, 40, 44-year-old guy can kind of stand on 7,000 people and say, hey, I love my wife. <laughs> I feel all red, you know, <laughs> I'm all hot. <laughs> oh, hey, man. You got, you, yes, but it's a, it's a fine, fine relationship we've got, and I'm very lucky. Let's get on to some science fiction news. Now, this isn't really science fiction news, but I just kind of, in the early days of kind of me reading experience, I kind of grew up on Clive Barker, and it's just he's got his Nightbreed screens, the uncut version for the first time ever is out. And actually, I'm following Clive Barker on, and he's only got 10,000 followers on Twitter as well, which is quite, you know what I mean? I thought he's like one of these kind of cult writers there. You would have so many more there. But it was just to mention that Clive Barker's Nightbreed, the film Nightbreed, the kind of uncut version of it is now out and about. And like I say, it, it was kind of hacked to bits when it first came out and it, it kind of lost a bit of its thread and there was like gaps in the story. Now Clive Barker, you know, it's 44 minutes longer. Then when it came out in the theatre, and I just thought, oh, I'll mention that, you know what I mean? Because like I say, I grew up with Clive Barker, and Weave World was just, you know, a great, a great story. And I want to mention as well, this is a little bit of news as well, and, you know, we've got all the kind of wranglings going on with Macmillan and Amazon, you know, all the kind of the price issues and everything like that. And I think sometimes all that's taken away from the fact that there's some great, great publishing you know, independent publishers out there still slugging away. We've got Nightshade Books. And it was just, I've seen this like little posting by Nightshade Books. It was by John Joseph Adams. And he was saying, you know, like, they're all battling over these kind of prices and DRM. Here at Nightshade Books, you can purchase, you know, like free DRM free multi format ebooks from most of the kind of Nightshade Book titles, you know, at, at $6. And I had a look over there and, you know, what I mean, $6. What's that, four, four quid? And like I say, DRM free. And some of the amazing titles there. So I think it's sometimes, you know, look out for these kind of independent publishing houses. And I'm going to mention another one with Gene Wolfe later on as well. Also in the news today, Subterranean Press, another independent... I think these independent book publishers, you know, for science fiction are kind of crucial, you know, and keep on pushing out some amazing stuff. Well, they've got two new Robert Silverberg titles out there. The first one is The Palace at Midnight. Now, this is volume five in his collected short stories series. 
And it comes in at over 150,000 words. And it's actually the longest volume by far. And this one focused on the early 1980s, you know, stories in there, such as The Pope of the Chimps. The next one that he's got coming out is The, the Last Song of Opus, which is a 30,000-word novella. Now, this is probably the longest thing in over a decade that Robert Silverberg wrote. Do you know what I mean? So, Subterranean Press have got two titles by Silverberg, one of the legends out there, still penning away. Next bit of news up is Neil Gaiman. He actually confirms that he's written up an up-and-coming Doctor Who episode. So it'll be nice to see how he can adapt his skills at writing for Doctor Who. Last up is sad news. The official homepage of science fiction writer William Ten is reporting that Philip Class, who actually was William Ten, died on Sunday, February the 7th, at the age of 89. Class only wrote one fiction novel, which was of men and monsters, but he was a prolific short story writer whose work actually has been recently collected by the New England Science Fiction Association Press in kind of three volumes. A modest proposal, Here Comes Civilization and Dancing Naked. And that's a great title, that Here Comes Civilization. You know, like science fiction, kind of dreams and things like that. So sad news, William Ten, who wrote under the name of Philip Class, has died. That is Starship Sofa's science fiction news. So it's with my humble apologies now that I need to step in and say, Matt, forgive us. To make it up, this is the Hairy Mangoes promo. Please go over there. Please go over there. Say hello to Matt, pushing out the Hairy Mango podcast. Hello, you big sillies. This is Matthew Sanborn-Smith telling you that my podcast, Beware the Hairy Mango, at BewareTheHairyMango.com is unquestionably more fun than a barrel of monkeys. And when you consider the feelings of the monkeys at the bottom of that barrel, I'm sure you'll agree. Each episode is a flash fiction story by me, along with my brilliant and unbalanced commentary. It's five minutes of downhill racing through Crazy Town, as you're about to taste. Hello, Mutumba's Spaghetti Barn? Son of a who cut your navel string? Woo! And when I say the length of a good bowel movement, I'm talking minutes, not inches. But I use Carter's all-weather chicken seasoning. Now there was a guy who needed a good spooning. Ooh, I can't wait. A giraffe walks into a bar and says, The highballs are on me! (sighs) We was able to build a cow that was 90% utter. That's the donate button over there, folks. Not an advertisement for Italian singing sensation Donate. Vampires are skillful drywallers. If you're like me, you'd better get to the emergency room immediately because I'm bleeding profusely. You'll laugh, you'll puke, you'll blow out the candles. That's Beware the Hairy Mango at BewareTheHairyMango.com Scraping the bottom of the barrel of monkeys. Ew. There you go, Matt. I hope in, in, in some small way that, that kind of that makes up for it. <laughs> Have you noticed I ain't given a date yet when that story's coming? I haven't got the thing narrated yet. <laughs> so, next up is our Good friend Amy H. Sturgis with looking back at science fiction history. Amy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. My most recent segments have focused on subjects in the 19th century, as is my wont. But for today, I am pushing myself forward into the 20th century. Yes, so now I'm only one century behind everybody else. Today's subject is actually just one specific book, 
And I think it's a fascinating case study, not only because we are looking back at its impact on genre history, but the fact that this book itself is an extended homage to genre history, not just science fiction, but also American westerns. In a way, this novel is one of the most fascinating, most interesting, most extreme mashups that I can think of. Now, of course, there's a long tried and true tradition in science fiction of authors referencing or stealing each other's characters, making in-jokes and allusions to their favorite texts, and sometimes, as in the case of Robert Bloch and H.P. Lovecraft, authors writing each other into their stories. So to point out that a science fiction novel makes references to other science fiction texts, well, that's not really news. But the work that I want to talk about did this in a remarkably clever way. And the author didn't just do it once, but a number of times. So if you're interested in American Westerns in any way, or if you're interested in mm, some works you've probably heard of before, like Star Trek, Doctor Who, Battlestar Galactica, then you'll want to hear about this particular novel. I'm talking about the novel Ishmael by Barbara Hambly. Now, before I go any further talking about Ishmael, I want to say a few words about Barbara Hambly herself. She's a prolific and award-winning author, not only of science fiction, but of fantasy, mystery, and historical fiction as well. She is my favorite kind of genre person, a historian. Yay! She has a master's in medieval history from the University of California at Riverside. And a lot of her historical training comes through in her works, whether they are science fiction, fantasy, mystery, or, obviously, historical fiction. She's written in several universes, including the Star Trek universe, three novels, uh, Beauty and the Beast, two novels, Star Wars, two novels, so she's played in other people's proverbial sandboxes, but she's also written series that are original to her. For example, the Winterlands series, the Windrose Chronicles series, um, a pair of excellent vampire novels, and the much-lauded Benjamin January mystery series. I believe her first book was The Time of the Dark in 1982, which began what was called the Darwith Trilogy, and her most recent work was 2007's Patriot Hearts. She's definitely still very active in the genre, and I would recommend picking up really any of her novels if you're looking for a new good author to explore. But I'll admit, the only Barbara Hambly novel that I own that is literally held together with a rubber band is Ishmael. I read it and reread it first as a teen and was fascinated as a fan, and now, as a scholar, I look back, and I'm fascinated by its remarkable blending of different texts and the very satisfying multi-universe experience that it provides. So let me explain to you why I think this book represents a unique moment in genre history, and also how it itself is a celebration of genre history. Okay, are you buckled up? Let's dive in. Ishmael was published in 1985. It was number 23 in Pocket Books' original run of professional Star Trek tie-in novels. And I would add that if you look at any online discussion today ranking the best of the classic 
Star Trek tie-in novels, Ishmael will be close to the top. Now, Star Trek, as I'm sure you know, was a science fiction series which ran in the U.S. from 1966 until 1969. That's important. The plot of the novel revolves around First Officer Mr. Spock discovering a Klingon plot to destroy the entire Federation of Planets by going back in time and killing a 19th century human who himself thwarted a 19th century alien invasion of Earth. Mr. Spock, as you may remember, was, and still is in one incarnation, portrayed by Leonard Nimoy. You may also remember that his father, Sarek, was portrayed by actor Mark Leonard. First, in the original series' original run, the episode Journey to Babel, and then later in some of the Star Trek films, and in Star Trek's second incarnation, Star Trek The Next Generation. Okay, stay with me here. Mark Leonard, in the 1960s, also starred in a U.S. Western television series called Here Come the Brides. This show ran from 1968 until 1970, so it overlapped with the original run of the original Star Trek series. Here Come the Brides started out as a historical, family-friendly drama-slash-comedy with romantic overtones. Not long into the first season, however, it changed its tone and became a much more serious and darker adult western. Here Come the Brides told the story that was based on a true story of the development of the town of Seattle, that is, Seattle, Washington, in the United States. Seattle began as a logging camp, essentially, full of well, loggers, male lumberjacks. And in the 1860s, after the American Civil War, it became clear that the town wouldn't ever become more than that unless there were women there as well. And so Asa Mercer traveled all the way to the U.S. East Coast and there found towns where the ravages of the Civil War had left communities pretty much devoid of men of a marriageable age. And he brought a number of young women, known as the Mercer Girls, because they were brought by Asa Mercer, back to the West Coast so that young men, young women together would create a living, vibrant town. Here Come the Brides, the television series, retold this story and focused on what it was like for this frontier community with hardy West Coast logging men and more refined East Coast New England women trying to build a lasting place amid the wilderness. Mark Leonard pretty much played the antagonist, Aaron Stimple, who owned the mill and who was constantly at odds with the so-called good guys, the Bold Brothers, who owned the mountain and did the logging. Just to add to the confusion here, I will point out that two of the other stars of Here Come the Brides also had guest moments on Star Trek. Robert Brown, who played Jason Bolt, starred as Lazarus in the Star Trek episode The Alternative Factor. And David Soule, who starred as Joshua Bolt in Here Come the Brides, who later went on to become Hutch in Starsky and Hutch, was one of the key aliens in the Star Trek episode The Apple. 
Okay, so when Barbara Hambly is writing this book and takes Spock back in time to the 19th century to the point at which this potential alien invasion was thwarted, she takes him back in time to Seattle, and not the historical Seattle with Asa Mercer, but the fictional Seattle of Here Come the Brides with Aaron Stimple, who was played by Mark Leonard. In fact, by far, the majority of the entire action of the novel Ishmael takes place in the Here Come the Brides universe with all of the Here Come the Brides characters. In other words, it's as if Mr. Spock walked off of the set of Star Trek and walked onto the set of Here Come the Brides and brought the audience along for the adventure. This accomplishes several things. First, it gives great closure to fans of Here Come the Brides because the series was canceled before it could really play out its final conclusion for the characters. And so in Ishmael, Hamley is able to give that next step in the lives of the main characters in a way that's very satisfying. But she also accomplishes something else very interesting. She explains why Mark Leonard, who played Aaron Stimple in Here Come the Brides, looks an awful lot like Sarek in Star Trek. She finds the link to Spock's human half going back through his mother, Amanda Grayson, to Aaron Stimple, this fictional character in the Here Come the Brides universe. And so you have neatly tied together then in a canonical way, because this was a professional novel, Here Come the Brides and Star Trek. Not only is Aaron Stimple the ancestor of Spock, but he's also given a very sympathetic portrayal. So Hamley is able to, in a way, save a character who was a bit of an antagonist and give him heroic qualities, qualities that we later then see in Spock himself. Hamley, of course, had authorization to use the Star Trek characters. She was under contract to write a Star Trek novel. She didn't have quite the same permission to use the Here Come the Brides characters, and apparently that caused some confusion and concern later on. Although she's not the only author to have written follow-up novels sort of on the down low about Here Come the Brides, there was another author, Charlotte Fox, who later wrote an historical fiction novel, Spirit of the Northwest, that also brought a sense of closure to the Here Come the Brides universe. Okay, so you have what may be the most unusual professional Star Trek tie-in novel ever written, because the majority of the action takes place not in the Star Trek universe per se, but in the Here Come the Brides universe. If I had to say any novel gave it a run for its money, that would be John M. Ford's How Much for Just the Planet, which was a Star Trek novel written as a musical comedy. But there's so much more to it than that. Because beyond creating a canonical tie between the Star Trek and Here Come the Brides universes, Ishmael is a loving send-up of both the U.S. Western and U.S. and U.K. science fiction. What do I mean by that? For the careful, observant reader, there are a number of remarkable cameos in this book that just really make it a delight, and that also help it to celebrate the subgenre of science fiction western, to which works as diverse as The Wild Wild West and Firefly and Serenity belong. 
Spock, in his travels, comes across a number of interesting characters. For example, he encounters, I quote, a good-looking boy in the dusty clothes of a trailhand just in from Virginia City and his ox-like older brother, who are clearly meant to be Joe Cartwright and Hoss Cartwright from the television series Bonanza. The knowledgeable reader will also see Lucas McCain from The Rifleman and Matt Dillon from Gunsmoke in the novel. At a different point in time, Spock also encounters characters from science fiction. He meets a pair of brown-uniformed pilots from some down-at-the-heels migrant fleet who are clearly described to be Apollo and Starbuck from the original Battlestar Galactica, as well as a scruffy-looking spice smuggler who is clearly Han Solo from Star Wars. And lovingly appearing throughout the novel are repeated references to Doctor Who. We see the fourth Doctor early in the novel. Much later, we see the second Doctor. Captain Kirk recalls stories of a planet of stagnant time travelers, referencing the Time Lords, and other specific details from certain serials within the larger Doctor Who universe are worked into the plot. So now you have a professional Star Trek tie-in novel, the majority of the action of which takes place in the universe of another television series, Here Come the Brides, referencing a number of westerns from the 1950s and 1960s, as well as science fiction from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Really, the novel is a genre literacy test and a lasting homage to both science fiction and Western history, as well as science fiction Western history. It's also a loving remembrance of the acting ability of Mark Leonard, who created two such compelling characters that Barbara Hamley was motivated to make them, in a sense, speak to each other and make them part of the same meta story. I would point out that there is also a tradition of actor-inspired science fiction as well, and I guess the most recent example of that would be the 2009 book by Jeff Burke called Shatner Quake in which all of the characters played by William Shatner are sucked into our universe and, in fact, come after William Shatner himself. No, I'm not making that up. Back to Barbara Hambly. I should point out that Ishmael is out of print in its hard copy form, although used copies are still available from time to time. But it is available in an ebook form, so if you're interested, you might check it out in that way. It represents a fascinating moment when two genres collided head-on and each brought in reinforcements from its own side so that you ended up with a multi-universe crossover of the most crossed variety. And it's a testament to how well these texts work together. As always, I hope you enjoyed this look back at genre history, and I look forward to talking to you again very soon. Hey, Guimi, thank you so much. So we get into the main fiction of the night, which is Gene Wolfe. Wow. And there's a fine narration by Mike Boris. And I did 
I mentioned on Twitter, please come over and follow her on Twitter because, you know, every now and again I do put out <laughs> something on Twitter. I mentioned that and it was just yesterday when I'm recording this, you know, forget the time shift, but I recorded an interview, you know, the 15 questions, the Starship Sova interrogations with Gene Wolfe. And I honestly cannot say how nice this guy was, do you know what I mean? And like I say, he's been in the business for donkeys, do you know what I mean? And he's just like so kind and, oh, it was just a, you know, and honestly, I was quite nervous, do you know what I mean? Like you're talking, and he's just lo- a lovely guy, do you know what I mean? And he answered those questions and then we kind of, I, t- I talked on and we talked on and we just, it, the whole conversation, an hour, he was on the phone, an hour. And it was a great insight into Gene Wolfe, do you know what I mean? Now, another independent publisher who's working with kind of Gene Wolfe and who does, you know, the, who works with loads of the kind of the big luminaries, is PS Publishing. And again, I just love you to go over there and just kind of see, you know, these are putting out some cracking stuff, PS Publishing. His first one, which is you can actually pre-order, is a new Gene Wolfe one called The Sorcerer's House, and he actually mentions this in the interview. There's an intro by Tim Powers. Then if you go on the, on the kind of PS Publishing as well, you can see the very best of Gene Wolfe. And he talks about this, you know what I mean? About putting, getting, collecting the stories for this, this, you know, this, this collection. When you go on the PS Publishing's website, you know what I mean? The, the, the covers on the books and some of the, the kind of writers they've got there is just amazing. Stephen Erickson, Lucius Shepard, Mike Resnick, Stephen Baxter... What I'm kind of just starting to like there about, not starting to like, but liking about PS Publishing is the covers are all kind of unusually different. Do you know what I mean? And it's always like magpies, you know what I mean? Them, them covers that catch your eye. Please go over to PS Publishing and have a look and like see it. Certainly Gene Wolfe stories. This story is narrated by Mike Boris. And actually, Mike Boris has a new website. You can go over to mikeborisaudio.com. Have a look there, you can see, you can see a picture of Mike Boris there as well. And like I say, if you ever need any, you know, narrations or anything like that, think about Mike Boris. And if you remember, Mike was actually recently nominated by Your Good Selves in the 2010 Sofa Notes Awards for Best Narrator. An old fella, an old fella by Larry Santoro pipped him at the post with <laughs> Spider Robinson, but Mike is an amazing narrator. He was the one, just kind of, so you can focus your mind on, did the Adam Troy Castro story as well. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. Pulp Cover by Gene Wolfe Narrated by Mike Boris My name does not matter. You have the name of the man I have gotten to tell my story. That's all you need to know. I am an American, and I live in a town big enough to call itself a city. I worked for Mr. Arthur H. East, as I'm going to call him. Furniture was our business. Mr. East owned three stores, two in our town and one in a neighboring town. He carried good quality and sold it at reasonable prices. Mr. East was sufficiently well off to have a big house in town and a vacation cottage on a good fishing lake. He hired me as a sales clerk, but promoted me to manager after six years. The promotion included an invitation to dinner, which I, of course, accepted. Up until that time, I knew no more of Mr. East's family than that he had a plump and pretty daughter I will call Mariel. I knew that only because she had come into the store I called mine looking for her father and smiled at me. I fell in love with Mariel at dinner that night. And she with me? I'd like to think so, but I don't know. 
Since this is my story, let's assume what I want so much to be true. She fell in love with me, but was too young to know it. She was only fifteen, ten years younger than I was. That was one of the things I learned that night. Others were that she had no brothers or sisters, and that her mother had been dead about eight years. You're wondering, Mr. East said, whether I plan to remarry. I won't until my daughter marries. After that, I might. I tried to say something noncommittal. I was raised by a stepmother, he told me. I will not let that happen to my daughter. It'll be quite a while, I said, before Mariel finishes college. I assumed, of course, that the daughter of such a wealthy man would go to college. Mr. East leveled his finger at me. You didn't finish college yourself. I had to drop out at the end of my freshman year when my parents could no longer afford it. I had been taking night classes ever since, switching my major from pre-law to business administration. It is a slow process. Finishing college has nothing to do with getting married, Mr. East declared. Not for Mariel, and as far as I can see, not for anybody. There are plenty of married students, and plenty of successful people who never graduated. By that time I realized, as you will have faster than I did, that I was under consideration. I got home that night without so much as bending a fender, although I haven't the least idea how I did it or what route I followed. I would marry lovely Mariel. We might or might not inherit her father's stores. It did not matter. Lovely Mariel would marry me. If her father left them to a second wife, she'd need somebody to run them, and I would be that somebody. Lovely Mariel and I would soon be married. If her father left them to us, we would be rich. If he did not, it would hardly matter. I have a good, secure job doing work I liked and running a business I understood. And I would have Mariel. My whole life opened out before me, and it was a life of love and success. I was walking on air. A few days later, a note from Mariel was in my mail. You will sneer when I say that my hands shook as I opened it, but that is sober fact. They did. She told me she had found out my address without asking her father, who wouldn't have wanted her to write. She said she thought I might want to write her, and gave me the address of a friend at school. If I would write the friend, enclosing an envelope with Mariel on it, the friend would pass it on to her in study hall. I wrote, of course. I must have torn up a dozen letters before I finally wrote the one I sent. I told her how beautiful she was, and, I will never forget this, I said that any man on earth would be attracted to her. I said that she could count on me to be a loyal friend and a protector whenever she needed one, and that I would never do anything to hurt her. After I had sealed the envelope, I wrote a note to her friend, thanking her for what she was doing for us, and asking her to write whenever she had news of Mariel. Here I'm going to try to put three or four years into a couple of minutes. We wrote back and forth like that, generally two or three times a week. As often as she could, Mariel came by the store to see me, trying to time things so that she could stay until closing. I would drive her home, and she would tell Mr. East that she had been shopping at the mall and I had given her a ride home. That was all true. We held hands and sometimes we kissed. She was more beautiful every time I saw her. She dated various boys at school. I knew none of them meant much to her because they changed every few weeks. I knew that I meant a lot to her because she told me all her deepest feelings in her letters. 
Her father was dating a woman from the town where our third store was. Sometimes he brought her home, and she stayed the night. Mariel didn't think she was good enough for her father, and wrote a lot about her. Mariel herself wanted to get married right away, or didn't want to get married until she was thirty. I think thirty was forever to her, although I was near that age. She wanted children. She wanted to be an actress who was a famous singer and dancer, and she wanted to be an astronomer and spend her whole life looking up at the stars, or else go to South America and study monkeys. All that stuff changed and changed, and pretty soon I saw that what she really wanted was pretty simple. She wanted security. She wanted people who would love her and take care of her, people who would love her always, no matter what happened. After that, I knew what I had to bear down on, and I did. I told her over and over that what I wanted was a good marriage and children, and that I would always be faithful and loving. Even if my wife did things I did not like, I would always love her and be faithful to her, I said, and I meant every word of it. It was early in May. I know that because my mother bought pansies and violas in early May every year, and I was digging a new bed for them when my father came to tell me my boss was on the phone. Mr. East asked me to meet him at Wheeler's for dinner, and I could tell from the way he said it that he had a lot on his mind. When we had eaten dinner together before, it had always been at his house. He had a housekeeper, and she would make a company dinner for Mr. East, Mariel, and me. So this was different, and it was pretty obvious why. He wanted to talk to me without Mariel around, or even knowing that we were talking. I was scared. He was already in a booth with a drink and a cigarette when I got to Wheeler's. We ordered steaks, and after the waiter had gone, Mr. East said, "'This isn't about business, and I like to keep my office businesslike. Besides, there are always phone calls. Here we won't be interrupted.' I suppose I nodded. "'You know my daughter Mariel. You've given her a lift a couple of times. Do you like her?' "'Yes,' I said. "'Very much. She's a wonderful girl.' Still, she's just a kid. I waited for him to go on. She'll do whatever I tell her to. I might have to jaw at her a little first, but she'll do it. It's a heavy responsibility. I said I realized that, and realized he would have to carry it until Mariel was twenty-one. Or until she gets married, he said. You can guess how I felt when he said that. Oscar Pendleton was my roommate in college. We were close then though we haven't kept in touch the way we ought to. He's been very successful, a lot more successful than I have. I founded a company and ran it. He founded half a dozen and sold them out. He has millions. You remember that big piece Furniture Trade did on us? I certainly did. It had been a cover story with a lot of color photographs. Oscar saw that and showed it to Jack. Jack's his oldest, and the only son he's got. I think there are a couple of girls, too. I suppose I nodded. Oscar sees a lot of business magazines because he's been into and out of a lot of businesses. Naturally, he was interested in a story about his old roommate's success. There were two pictures of Mariel in there, remember? One of us outside the house and another in my study talking to her. Jack got very, very interested in Mariel as soon as he saw her. One of those crazy things, you know, like falling for a girl you saw on TV. That was when the waiter came with our steaks, and I'll tell you I was damn glad of it. So Oscar wrote to me. Would it be okay if Jack came for a visit? He would stay at our house and take Mariel to shows and so on. 
I suppose he'll play tennis with her, too. I'd be there, and if things looked like they might go too far, I could break it up. I nodded and pretended I was busy eating. Jack's a Yale man. He'll graduate this year. Mariel will graduate from high school, too. I doubt that you knew that, but it's true. She's been looking at colleges, just fooling around with it, really. You know how kids are. Sure. So four years' difference in their ages. That's not bad. And she's mature for her age. When Jack's forty, she'll be thirty-six. I said a difference that small hardly mattered. Right. Uh, just what I've been thinking myself. Now listen. I want a favor and a big one. Jack's plane lands at 9.20. United Airlines. I'd like you to meet him at the airport. You can drive out as soon as we finish here. Jack Pendleton. I want you to size him up for me, and I want you to meet me for lunch at noon tomorrow. Tell me what you think of him. Tell me everything the two of you said, and exactly how he seemed to you. I'll have formed my own impressions by that time, but I want to check them against those of a man I can trust who's closer to his own age. Can I count on you? Out at the airport, I didn't have to ask which passenger was Jack Pendleton. He was six foot two, and something about him made you think he was even bigger. He was plenty handsome enough for the movies, and he had on a Yale sweater. We shook hands. I explained that I worked for Mr. East. I said an important business matter had come up, and he was too busy to come in person. But he would probably be home by the time we got there. Jack nodded. He didn't smile. I don't think I ever saw him smile, except at Mariel, and I couldn't get a dozen words out of him the whole time. Here it is going to sound like I want to make myself out to be a lot smarter than I am. Riding back into town and then out to Mr. East's, it seemed to me that there was only one person in the car, me, and there was something else in there with me that wasn't really an animal or a machine or even a plant or a rock, something else that wasn't any of those things. We went into Mr. East's, and the two of them shook hands, and he introduced Jack to Mariel. I could see that Mariel was attracted to him and scared of him, both at once. I wasn't attracted, and I wasn't scared either, but I had the feeling I'd be scared half to death if I knew more. Next day, Mr. East and I had lunch at a little French place he liked. He asked what I thought of Jack, and I said he was big and strong and tough, and from what I had seen of him, as hard as nails. But he wasn't human. I know what you mean. Oscar says his IQ is in the stratosphere. Maybe, I said. Maybe not. But what I mean is there's nothing warm there. Suppose I'd stopped the car and we'd got out and fought. I said that because I'd been thinking of it during the drive. He could have killed me and thrown my body in the trunk and never turned a hair. I pointed to my salad. That stuff is alive. That's why it's nice and fresh and green. When I chew it up and swallow it, I'm killing it. Killing me would bother Jack about as much as killing this stuff bothers me. I think he's a fine young man, Mr. East told me, and after that he changed the subject. I had hoped that Mariel could go to a college in the town where Ellie Smithers lived. Ellie was the woman Mr. East was dating. So did Mariel, and she had said so in her letters. She went to a famous girls' college in upstate New York instead. I won't tell you what it was, but if I said the name, you'd recognize it. You could have gotten the best car at Bailey's Cadillac and Oldsmobile for what it cost to go there for just one year. I think it was around Christmas when Mr. East told me about the double wedding. It would be in June, and I was invited. 
The couples would be Jack Pendleton and Mariel, and Mr. East and Ellie Smithers. It would be a garden wedding with five hundred guests, if Ellie has her way, and Jack's father, mother, and sisters would fly out. Mr. East cleared his throat and leaned back. I'm telling you this in confidence. I want that understood. Oscar's setting a portfolio of investments, stocks and bonds, on Mariel. I'll manage it for her until she's of age. I've checked out those investments, checked them very thoroughly. Then had my broker check them over again for me. Two million three hundred thousand in change if you sold everything today. The income should be around two hundred thousand a year. It could be more. Growth twelve percent or so. Maria will always be taken care of. I came to the wedding, but Oscar Pendleton, his wife, and his daughters didn't. Later, I found out that Mr. East had gotten a phone call. The woman who called said she was Sarah Pendleton, and he had no reason to doubt her. Oscar had had a heart attack. He was in intensive care. She knew the wedding was all set and couldn't be postponed, but only Jack would be there. After it was all over, and Jack and Mariel had flown to Boston to see Jack's father in the hospital, supposedly, I did something I felt a little guilty about at the time. I phoned every last hotel and motel in the area. Nobody'd had reservations for an Oscar Pendleton and family. Nobody'd had reservations for a Sarah Pendleton either. Mr. East and Ellie were honeymooning then, so I went out to the house and talked to the housekeeper. She didn't know where the Pendletons were going to stay, but she hadn't been told to expect five house guests, and there was no way in hell she wouldn't have been. It wouldn't be regular anyway, would it? The groom in the house the day before the wedding. Him and his folks would put up at the Hyatt or something. I'm pretty sure. So I checked the Hyatt again, this time in person. Nothing. It wasn't. I don't know. It was absolutely not. By that time, I was so worried I couldn't eat, and I was fighting mad. It took a hell of a lot of doing, but I got Oscar Pendleton on the phone, long distance. Certainly, he remembered his old friend Art East. How was Art doing? Jack? No, he didn't have a son with that name. Two sons, Donald and Douglas, Don and Doug. Their friend said, "Nobody ever called either one of them Jack. He had no daughters. His wife's name was Betty." You're going to say that I should have told Mr. East before he got back from his honeymoon. I've told myself that about a thousand times. Only I kept thinking it might be some kind of silly mistake. By that time, the honeymoon was nearly over. I told myself I would tell him when he got back. But I didn't. The thing was that I had called his broker. I told Mr. East he had put me in charge of his financial affairs while he was gone, and I wanted to make sure Mariel's trust fund was in order. It was. The brokerage was holding everything, but they would not sell or buy or make any other changes without a signed authorization from Mr. East. I explained that I didn't want to change anything. I just wanted to make sure everything was straight. It was. They had the whole trust portfolio in their hands two weeks before the ceremony. There was nothing to worry about. After I hung up the phone, I felt like I ought to laugh, but I didn't. On the one hand, I was damn sure something was terribly, terribly wrong. On the other, it was a couple of million. Suppose the man I'd talked to hadn't been Oscar Pendleton at all. Suppose it had been some joker and he'd been stringing me. A few days later, Mr. East got back all happy and tanned, and I asked as casually as I could where Mariel had gone on her honeymoon, and whether he had heard from her. They were going to Europe, he said, for a month. 
He had taken two weeks not wanting to be away from the business any longer than that. He hadn't heard from her, but then he hadn't expected to. I said I was worried, and he told me to forget it. You can probably guess what I did next. I got hold of the girlfriend who had passed my letters to Mariel. She had heard nothing. She had been a bridesmaid, and she gave me the names of the other bridesmaids and told me where they lived. None of them had heard from Mariel. I talked to every one of them in person, and if they had been lying, I would have known it. They weren't. None of them had heard a word from the girl who had liked writing letters enough to write me two or three times a week. I went to Mr. East and gave it to him straight. I said I was sure something had happened to Mariel, and he had damned well better get in touch with his friend Oscar and find out where Jack was. He got in touch with Oscar Pendleton, all right. And you know what he found out? No Jack, no heart attack, no plans that had been cancelled, no anything. He hired a detective agency. All they were able to tell was that there was no such person as Jack Pendleton. Yale had never heard of him, neither had Social Security, and a lot more of that. They told Mr. East he'd better go to the police and have them list Mariel as a missing person. By that time, Jack and Mariel should have been back from Europe for a couple of months, so Mr. East did. Nothing came of that either. Years passed. Oscar Pendleton had never had a heart attack, but Mr. East did. It was bad. He'd had enough time in the hospital to write a will, and when his lawyer read it, the audience was the housekeeper, Ellie, and me. The housekeeper got ten thousand. Ellie got the house, the cabin, the cars, and the rest of the money, and she was to administer Mariel's trust fund. If Mariel could not be found, the trust fund went to charity. Mariel got the business, which I was to run in trust for her, with a nice raise. If Mariel could not be found, the business was to be sold and the money given to charity. All nice and neat. My folks died, and I sold the house and moved into an apartment. Seven years after the wedding, Mariel was declared legally dead, and that was that. I had an MBA, a night school MBA, but still an MBA. I knew the furniture business backward and forward, and I had a lot of contacts in that business. I moved to a bigger town when a company there offered me a good job. I was thirty-six, going bald, but not too bad-looking. All right, I wasn't Jack, but Jack hadn't been Jack either. I dated maybe half a dozen girls, but the more I saw of them, the less I liked them. One night, my bell rang. I pushed the button to let my visitor in and went to the door to see who it was. It was Mariel. She was only twenty-five, but she looked like hell. Her cheeks had fallen in and you could see the fear in her eyes. You still can. I told her to come in and sit down, and I said I was damn glad to see her, which I was, and I had wine and beer and cola and could make coffee and tea if she'd like that. What did she want? And she said, everything, just like that. She had no money and no place to stay. She couldn't remember the last time she had eaten, but she couldn't chew anything much because her back teeth were gone. She needed a bath and clean clothes. I'd asked her how she'd found me, and I expected her to say Ellie told her, or at least somebody in the town where we were born. She didn't. She'd been wandering from city to city for months, hitchhiking, begging, doing time in jail for shoplifting canned soup from a supermarket. She couldn't remember the town we had lived in or where it was. All she could remember was three names, Mary East, Arthur East, and my name. 
Mary East had been her mother. She had repeated those names a hundred times to people she met, and finally someone had pointed out my building, and of course my name had been on the plate beside the bell button. As if all that wasn't bad enough, she kept switching to a foreign language, and I'd have to stop her and get her to speak English again. I can recognize quite a few languages when I hear them, and it wasn't remotely like Spanish or German or even Chinese or Arabic, and it certainly wasn't Polish or Russian. I got milk and soup into her, and crackers she soaked in her soup so she could eat them. She handed her clothes to me out of the bathroom door, and I put them in the little washing machine off my kitchen. When she came out all wrapped up in one of my robes, she asked me who I was, saying she had remembered my name and knew my face, but didn't know how she had known me. I said I was the guy who wanted to be her husband, and she screamed. We're married now, Mariel and me, so I got what I had wanted so badly years ago. Eleven months after we were married, she had Ian. She said he had to be named Ian, E-E-N, and got hysterical when I argued, so I guess it's a name from the place where she was. She won't tell me where that is, and says she doesn't know. She let me pick Ian's middle name, so his name is Ian Richard and my name, and most people think it's Ian, I-A-N, Richard. Laurie and Lois came after that, and I know they're mine. Okay, you're going to say it's not possible that human women carry children for nine months, and that's that. But when I look into Ian's eyes, I know. He's a good kid, don't get me wrong. He's bright, and when you tell him to clean up his room, he does it. He doesn't play with other kids, but they respect him. Or else. In two more years, he's going to be one hell of a high school football player. That's almost all I have to say. One night I woke up, and Mariel wasn't in the bed. I happened to look out the back window, and she was out there with Ian, pointing out stars and stuff. So I thought I ought to warn people, and now I have. While I was telling all this, the man who's going to write it showed me one of his old pulp magazines. It had a monster with great big eyes and tentacles on it, and this monster is chasing a girl in a one-piece tin swimsuit. But it's not really like that. It isn't really like that at all. There you go. A big, big thank you to Gene Wolfe. Do look out for Starship Sova Interrogations, where I put the 15, the 15 questions to Gene Wolfe. Please, if you want to drop me an email, by all means, that would be lovely to hear from you. Starshipsover at gmail.com. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Starship Sofa, a badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.